Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday, 28th of October, 2018. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial, or you can have a listen from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue, where you'll find a number of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts and you can stream the show. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook, and today's weather um, becoming sunny later in the day. Uh, top of 18 degrees, gentle winds coming in from the uh, the south-southwest, so as always be careful if you're getting out and about on our uh, beautiful bay or waterways in the state of Victoria. Today in the studio I'm joined again by John Lewis who is the Principal Marine Cult... Uh, Principal Marine Consultant for Eslink Services for part two of an interview that we first conducted back on the 26th of August this year. Uh, John, welcome back to Out of the Blue. Oh, thanks, Andrew, and I'm very pleased to come back. Thank you. Excellent. Today we'll be uh, discussing the topic of biofouling and marine pests with John, amongst other things, and we'll be back after this brief announcement. 
Whether it's hip-hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into, 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontieres, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hit Sister Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR, 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 94198377. The newspaper shout, a new style is growing. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, so, John, can you tell us a bit about uh, that very interesting area? Last last time we met, we were talking about marine pest species and, and that sort of thing. Uh, sort of hand in hand with that is the topic of uh, biofouling. Uh, can you tell us a bit about biofouling and how you got into it in the first place? Yeah, certainly, Andrew. Um, last time we were talking about largely the algal work I did when I was at university, that uh, when I went on to do a master's, I was working on the subtitle Algal Ecology out at the Jellybrand Lighthouse, for those that can remember it before it got bowled over by a ship off Williamstown and essentially dealing with a fouling community. And then at the time, I was very fortunate that Defence Science were looking to expand the marine environment group to get some biologists. So I managed to walk straight into a job there to look at initially the composition of biofouling around Australia as a, a um, background to what affects the, the Navy and other ships. So I then went on to spend uh, nearly 30, 30 years working on biofouling, ways of managing that biofouling and of course the movement of invasive marine species came into that as well. Yeah, right. Just backing up the truck there, John, the uh, the Jolly Round Lighthouse you were saying got knocked over by a ship. When was, when was well, that? Well, it was right in the middle of my project. Wow. So uh, that, that was in 1976. Um, for those that don't know, the Jolly Round Lighthouse was actually the superstructure of an old light ship that used to be down in the South Channel, which they put on piles and became the lighthouse. Right. And there, there was one foggy morning partway through my study that the uh, one of the, I think it was the Melbourne trader, tried to get into the port in the fog and miscalculated and knocked the lighthouse, which um, ports immediately went about getting rid of it, you know, burnt it to the ground. And uh, <laughs> and so uh, there was a bit of a panic. I had to work around to find a new study site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I reckon. Oh, that's uh, that's amazing. I, wouldn't, I wasn't even aware of that. That's very interesting stuff. So um, for, just for the benefit of our listeners, uh, John, when we talk about biofouling, what exactly are we, we talking about there? Okay, well, biofouling, Essentially, anything you put in the, the sea becomes a potential home for a whole myriad of organisms right through just about every phyla. Now, it's often biofouling refers to where you get that growth, where you don't want it. And essentially, that's on man-made structures and, of course, ships and boats. So since... Um, uh, we first went to sea, we've had this problem with things attaching. And, and it's quite a unique community that it has to be a species that will be able to survive the water turbulence, um, be opportunistic to establish, and um, therefore, you know, the archetypal um, biofouling organism is a barnacle, perfectly adapted to attaching to a, a ship and resisting virtually anything. I mean, they're stuck yeah. so hard. Yeah. Uh, and so over the centuries, we've actually built up this 
community that's picked up species from all parts of the world that are adapted to this lifestyle. Yeah. And most of them are uh, fairly widely spread yeah, at the moment. Yeah, right, right. So with the barnacles, that's a cla- like you said, that's a classic example of a biofowl. T- such tough little buggers, aren't they? Because they're, Absolutely. They're, yeah. I mean, you see so many of them that are intertidal in yes. distribution. So when you think about that, um, when we've got a barnacle that's clamped onto a rock or something in the intertidal zone, they're in the sort of swash mm. zone, and then the tide comes in, they're submerged, tide uh, tide drops again and all of a sudden they're totally exposed. So in the middle of summer, they've got to put up with these monstrous uh, fluctuations in temperature, obviously humidity, one minute they're submerged, one minute they're exposed, um, uh, all those sorts of things coming into play and they, they're able to resist that. They're pretty amazing organisms. When that, that's right. And of course that um, suits them to the, the lifestyle of having to transit through the tropics or cold water, warm water, different salinities. Yep. Um, that The species are just perfectly adapted for oh, that. Yeah. So we, before we were discussing the uh, fundamentally, I guess, two mechanisms of, uh, of introduced marine pests entering uh, a mm. port or a, or, or a locale. Um, so we've got the biofouling on the one hand and then also ballast water um, yes. discharges. Just off air before, John, you were mentioning a very interesting uh, thing about uh, which one poses the or poses the greater threat in terms of invasives coming in and how they get established and that sort of thing yeah um, well it's two quite different mechanisms with ballast water essentially a an empty ship takes up a whole volume just pumps in the ballast water from a particular harbor so you're taking a sample of that whole community at that time so all the larvae all the uh, the, the plankton and then moving that to another location and then pumping it out. So yeah, anything yeah. that can survive in that protected environment then gets released. So that's like, like you're saying, a little mobile ecosystem. A little mo- mobile ecosystem. But fouling's a little bit different in that when, uh, particularly with the use of anti-fouling paints and this selection process, that it's only the opportunistic things that are settle um, initially. And it, it's the longer... A surface is in the in the water. The as the community matures or the anti-fouling paint uh, loses its effectiveness, you start to get the more complex community. So, um, a good example of that is after the Japanese tsunamis, where an actual um, port uh, pontoons actually travelled right across the uh, Pacific Ocean and landed in uh, on the. Uh, on the uh, west coast of America. And they were complete communities. They had seaweeds, they had crabs, they had the whole lot. So that is almost the equivalent of ballast water. But you've got this, for ships, you've got this big selection process. So essentially most of the biofouling, although, you know, a, a lot of people talk about biofouling being the most significant vector. Now, certainly the most alien species in a port have come in by biofouling, but most of those are just opportunistic things about the war around the wharves and other artificial structures and other boats. But they have limited potential to actually invade healthy ecosystems. Right. Whereas the ballast water can bring something in and it can take off. The good examples are things like Asterius, the Northern Pacific Sea Star, obviously came in in ballast water as a larval stage, whereas our um, ports are full of different little bryozoans and hydroids that have come in, some of them going dating back to the gold rush. Wow. And they just occupy and they're, they're never 
while there's continual disturbance of the environment, they'll establish. But if there's a healthy ecosystem, they, they just can't penetrate. Yeah, right. So they don't exert as much of an impact. Obviously, the Asterius <laughs> is very invasive. The, the numbers have skyrocketed, the population explosion, and had a fundamental impact on the ecosystem, from what we can tell, a very detrimental one. Whereas the others, you're saying, some of the Briar Zones, they just basically come along, get integrated into the ecosystem, and it's one extra species. Yes, that, that's right. And artificial structures are provi um, provided a, an unusual environment. So in the natural world, you don't have jetties and piers and rock balls. And bryozoans in particular like to settle in shaded um, locations. So in the, on a, a reef, you'll find them in under the rocks and stones or under rock shelves. But in a port, they, they, you find them, of course, underneath the walls and under the boats. Yeah, and that's yeah. a, we've actually created that environment. So... In, in many respects, that community is a secondary impact over what disturbances we've created. So the more, you know, if we build a marina or something like that, you are going to get alien species. Yeah. But whether they're invasive or not in the terms of actually causing harm to natural ecosystems, there are some that do but it's a very small number in the marine environment. Right. So you, in other words, what you, uh, the, the long and the short of it is that you need a lot of ingredients to come into play for a species to be truly invasive. So you'll need, on the one hand, of course, you need the life history characteristics and the biology of the critter itself, but then you also, um, I think a, a good example might be Apollo Bay, where we found the Undaria uh, a few years ago, and for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to have spread too much beyond the Apollo Bay harbour. Uh, would that be a sort of situational? A like absolutely, yes. Yeah. And even in Port Phillip Bay with the Undaria that's been there since what, 1999, I think it is, initially found uh, around Point Wilson, it's spread along the northern part of the bay, but the satellite populations in the bay are all associated with um, boating structures. So Port Arlington Pier, Blair Gowrie Pier, Geelong Marina, Queenscliff Marina. Yeah. And then there's the jump to Apollo Bay Harbour. So it, although they've you know, found isolated plants now or small populations at places like Pope's Eye, um, because it's a seasonal species, it, it um, can't actually penetrate or displace native species. So it, it almost becomes, you'd call a commensal, um, just living alongside but, but not causing any displacement. Of the, the native community. There you go. Yeah, it's very interesting stuff. And from what we can tell, uh, how did Undaria get in in the first place? Well, <coughs> Undaria, there, there's two two ways it can spread. Yes, it can certainly grow on hulls. Um, unlike the barnacles, the way it survived is because it dies off in the summer. It has a, a micro gametophyte to actually survive the hot weather. So that on a ship that provides a way of surviving the tropics on the way down. Now, in New Zealand, it was actually seen on Japanese fishing boats. Right. Um, so there's actually genetically two discrete introductions to the Southern Hemisphere. One is the plants found in New Zealand, in Melbourne and Argentina, um, which are probably come into New Zealand possibly and then spread by spore boats. The second one is the one in Tasmania, which came into the woodchip port at Tribuna. Right. Now, it's possible that it came in as um, a, a floating sporophyll. When 
Andaria dies back at the end of the season, you're left with the fruiting sporophyll and they can be dislodged and you'll go down to places like Williamstown at Christmas and you'll find these sporophylls rolling around on the beach. Now, yeah. There's every likelihood that got sucked up into ballast water, survived and then got pumped out in Triabunna when the ship discharged its ballast water. Wow. So um, I think there's those two separate mechanisms and I believe the Melbourne one probably came as biofouling on small boats or okay. recreational boats across from New Zealand. So even after Undaria has died back um, and you've got that spirophyll left, that could still potentially be viable and releasing spores and a so Absolutely, on? yes. Yeah. Um, that that spirophyll, it's, it's, it, well, it, it, it's like a fruit on a land plant that, you know, the, the blade it grows to provide all the energy to put into pro, um, producing the spores in the spirophylls. And the other aspect is that um, a lot of those sporophylls, when you're testing for viability, you dry it out for, for 24 hours and then put it back in the water and it'll immediately release all the spores. So again, there's that um, uh, ability to handle some sort of stress and then release. Excellent, excellent. Uh, very interesting stuff. This is certainly a fascinating field. All the way, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others were... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shore. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. Just before we kick back to uh, John Lewis in the studio for more of his absorbing discussion on biofouling and marine pests and, and those sorts of issues, I just wanted to bring our uh, listeners up to speed on a very exciting event that we've got coming up soon. Uh, Thursday the 8th of November 2018, it's 7pm uh, at Story Hall, RMIT University. We've got a uh, fantastic public event showcasing Victoria's marine science. And this one is being put on by AMSA, that's the Australian Marine Sciences Association, and uh, uh, hosted by RMIT University School of Science. Uh, and we've got a number of interesting speakers on a whole range of very interesting uh, topics. Dr. Catherine Hassel will be talking about uh, what fish can tell us about marine pollution. Uh, Nathan Body is going to be talking about marine parasites. There, are, That's an area that I'm absolutely fascinated in. Um, Alison O'Brien, she's going to be talking about uh, eDNA and citizen science. Dan uh, Eridiakonu, uh, one of my old uni mates, is going to be talking about uh, voyages of discovery, uh, voyages of discovery, habitat characterisation of Victorian coastal waters and beyond. He's been doing an enormous amount of work now, Dan, for many years on uh, GIS and that sort of thing, and uh, looking at the underwater topographical features of uh, Victoria and Australia. So that'll be absolutely fascinating. Simon Brannigan uh, is going to be talking about the restoration of shellfish 
fish reefs. Uh, again, Simon Brannigan from the Nature Conservancy doing an enormous amount of work in that space around a, a very important topic. And Kate Charlton-Robb, uh, she's going to be discussing genomic assessment of Victoria's new dolphin species. So really uh, what we've got there is something for everyone um, out, of those, uh, out of those six speakers. There's going to be some really interesting topics for our, uh, uh, our, our audience to get along and, uh, and check it out. Tickets are uh, $10 um, and uh, limited, so try and book early. Get into Vic Marine Science uh, 2018. That's vicmarinescience2018.eventbrite.com.au. If you jump onto the Eventbrite site and search for Showcasing Victoria's Marine Science, you'll, uh, you'll find it there. And having been to a number of these things now for the last few years, um, I can absolutely vouch for them personally that they are tremendous events. They're nice, short and sharp presentations where the people get up and they only talk for about, uh, I think it's about 10 minutes or so mm-hmm. off the top of my head, uh, the very short, sharp, punchy presentations, and there's an opportunity for audi- for the uh, audience to ask questions of the presenters, mm-hmm. uh, and they are all, uh, the, the one thing that's undeniable is that they're all uh, the, the cream of the crop, they're all guns in their uh, in their field, so promises to be some very uh, absorbing stuff. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll kick on with the show. Uh, John, um, you were talking before about uh, some of the, uh, what are some of the options we've got for containing biofouling and, and yeah. limiting it? Well, the prevention of biofouling has been something on the mind of um, ship operators for centuries because essentially the growth slows down the vessel. And if you go back to Captain Cook, I mean, he had to beach his vessel a couple of times to actually clean the growth off, and that could well have been how some of our first aliens got here. But the first uh, sort of effective anti-fouling was when they put copper plating, copper sheathing on some of the timber vessels, and that was the slow release of copper was enough to control the fouling. Right, so that was an accidental sort of thing. Well, it was intentional to use that. Oh, wow. The issue was when we went to iron ships, they couldn't use copper because it would corrode the iron. Cause the iron to rot. That's right. So it was almost the end of iron ships. But then someone developed the first paint in the late 1800s, which actually had copper. And copper was the mainstay of um, anti-fouling protection, right? Right through until the, the 60s. Um, they tried various other wonderful things like arsenic and mercury, which progressively got banned. Um, but copper paints, but you'd never get more than maybe 12 to 18 months life out of something like that. Right. And some people out in the environmental world may have heard of the nasty tributyl tin. Well, yeah. tributyl tin was introduced in the 60s and it was wonderfully effective. Now, one of the things with an anti-fouling biocide, it, it, it has to be toxic, but not too toxic. Yeah. It has to have the character to be able to come out of the paint fast, but not too fast, not too slow. And it had to break down in the environment fairly quickly. And with tributyl tin, they initially thought this is the perfect result. Yep. But then it started to show up these unexpected impacts on oysters. Initially, in the, it caused malformations. It turned out that shells had, um, shellfish had a particular lack of ability to break it down. So most other organisms could. Wow. And so the, the search came for something else. But the thing with that tributyl tin, it had stretched the life of paints out to five years. Um, and how do you find an alternative? And this is where I started to work on DSTO, looking at alternatives. And we eventually, we've, we've come back to copper. Copper is the mainstay, but there are secondary biocides that you have to have put in because a lot of organisms are copper tolerant now. Right. And to get the best balance, you need some of these other biocides, of which there's only a handful. 
And the restrictions are such that in Australia, where anti-fouling paints have to be approved by the APVMA, we only have currently 50 paints approved, of which probably half of those are fairly cheap. A lot of them use diuron, which has been banned in other parts of the world. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, but because of the dependence for small boats on this diuron, we still use it. But there are newer biocides, which are a lot safer. Yeah, right, right. So when we talk about the copper side of things, uh, effectively we're talking about slow release of things like copper sulfate, are we talking? Copper it's cuprous oxide. Cuprous, right. Yeah, or for aluminium, which can't use cuprous oxide, it's copper, thi copper thiocyanate because cuprous oxide will actually corrode the aluminium hull. Right. And again, those paints don't last anywhere near as long. So you're lucky to get two years out of a paint on 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 aluminium. Right, right. So the, the other thing too with um, TBT, the, the tributyl tin you were mentioning before, uh, when was it that that was actually banned in the state of Victoria amongst uh, others? It was, it was progressive um, through through the 80s that initially it was banned on, on yachts and then it built up to an international ban through the IMO and that was predicated by them starting to find TBT residues in whales and dolphins and in the deep sea and seabirds. Gee. So. Um, it was in the early 2000s that it was globally banned. Unreal. And also uh, causing things like, I think I read somewhere that it was dog whelks and that sort of thing where it Absolutely. caused impo sex. Yes, so yeah, it caused impo sex at very, very low concentrations was enough to change the sex or really sterilise um, a lot of gastropods, including they picked it up in cone shells at Rottnest Island, oh, for instance. And, uh, and a, a lot of our local whelks are also impacted we're also impacted. There you go. We're uh, steamrolling right towards the end of the program, but the other acronym you dropped in there before uh, was uh, DSTO, the Defence Science and Technology Organisation. That, that's correct. So, yeah. so you've done a lot of work for them over the years? Well, or? I actually worked for them for 30 years, oh, working yeah. on environmental issues for Navy. So a lot of it was anti-fouling and trying to find more acceptable anti-fouling coatings, but we touched on other things um, such as, you know, the effect of sound on organisms and uh, um, we actually did a lot of monitoring of TBT in the environment over in the West to monitor what was happening in, mus in mussels. Wow, amazing stuff. Well, thanks again for coming into the uh, studio, Don, uh, John. We've run right out of time again, um, but uh, please stay tuned for Out of the Pan with Sally and we'll catch you next time. Oh, man.